Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel 26 is the last in a kind of a trilogy of chapters, three chapters in a row where David has an opportunity to um, avenge himself on some guys who are his enemies, or that at least he perceives to be his enemies. In chapter 24, Saul winds up in a cave with David. He has an opportunity to kill him. He doesn't do it. He takes a step towards him. He cuts a corner off his robe. He's convicted uh, by the Lord for doing that. That's a, that was a, a self-assertive move on David's part. It was a grasping after the throne. He's convicted. And so he tells his guys, nobody's, nobody's touching Saul. It was a test. It was orchestrated by God to see what was in David's heart. Then in chapter 5, we see he's tempted. He's not tested. He's tempted. Nabal, who's a wicked man, insults him. And David's response to the insult is to say, I'm going to kill Nabal and every man in his house. Massively disproportionate to Nabal's actions towards him. And so he takes 400 men, and he is riding to Nabal's house to kill him. And God sends Abigail, Nabal's wife, out to literally stand in the middle of the road and say, don't do this. The weight of this bloodshed on your conscience will be staggering. You do not want to do this. David is tempted. James talks about we're tempted by our own evil desires, and we're led away and enticed. And there's something in David's heart, this need for revenge or honor or whatever, and that he's tempted in that moment to, um, to exercise revenge. And thankfully, uh, he hears the voice of God through Abigail, and he, it's, a, it's a physical picture of repentance. He turns around and rides back in the other direction. Uh, today, chapter 26, it's the last of these three successive uh, tests or temptations or what, kind of however you want to see that where David again has an opportunity to kill Saul and we'll see how he responds to that. It's also the last uh, interaction between David and Saul. It's their last conversation with each other and I think it's a very clear picture, maybe the clearest picture we've seen up to this point of why God chose David over Saul. A picture of what it means to be a man or a woman uh, after God's own heart. So chapter 26, verse 1, the Ziphite, the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakalah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely Arrive. So David is in the, the wilderness, the desert around the city of Ziph. Uh, for some reason, the Ziphites, this is the second time that they've told Saul where David is. And so he goes from that yellow star, Gibeah, you don't need to worry about the um, cities. They're so, written so small. And he travels all the way down to that purple box. That's the desert around Ziph. It's a wilderness. That green star is where David was last week, Carmel. You can see how close it was. That's where Abigail and Nabal Lived. And so Saul brings his 3,000 people all the way down into that purple box. He's looking for David. Probably not difficult to know when 3,000 troops have entered your territory. And so David sends some scouts out to make sure it is indeed Saul and to find out where Saul uh, is camping. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. You can kind of picture that, right? Kind of like a donut. Saul's in the middle. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. 
And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. So this is weird, I think, to me. David's got two guys. He knows where Saul is and they sneak up on the camp. And then they can see Saul sleeping in the middle of all the troops. And then he says, all right, which one of you two wants to go with me through this crowd of 3,000 soldiers to get to Saul? And Abishai says, I'll go. So if I'm Abishai, I'm thinking the only reason... We would take this risk as if we're going to kill Saul. Like, what, what else are we doing? If we're going, it's to kill Saul. So they sneak through. Like, there are no flashlights. I mean, you think about it, There's no flashlight. Somehow they're getting through the dark to where Saul is. And they get there. And Abishai is thinking, well, the only reason we came was to kill Saul. And God was obviously in this. There's no other way you can get through all these people without anybody waking up. We didn't trip and fall. We didn't make any noise. They didn't wake up. It's got to be the Lord. It's what you want, David. It seems to be what the Lord wants. Let me kill him. And David says, no, we're not touching him. And I'm sure at that point, Abishai's going, what, what, what are we doing then? We're going to take the spear and the water jug, of course. That was probably the second thing he was thinking they were going to do. So they grab the spear and the water jug and they leave. There's no indication at all that David prayed before he went. There's no indication that he was led by the Lord, but the Lord was in it. He put the people into a deep sleep. And I'm wondering if it was God going, oh, oh Lord, he's doing something. And he's kind of acting on David's behalf at that point. He sees David making this move, which appears maybe reckless, at least on some level. And he's thinking, I've got to help him. And so he puts all the guys to sleep. And they stay in that sleep until David gets back with Abishai to, the, uh, to, a, to a safe distance away. So David crossed over to the other side, stood on top of the hill some distance away. There's a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who's like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your lord, the king. What you've done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They've driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now, do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. 
Then Saul said, I've sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you consider my life precious today. I will try. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I've acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here's the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed. David, my son, you'll do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. So I think there's a picture maybe gives us some insight into why David did what he did. Why would he take this massive risk, go into this enemy camp with 3,000 troops, just him and one other guy, do all of that just to take a spear and a water jug? I think what David's doing, Saul's got him outnumbered five to one. David has 600 troops. Saul has 3,000. Saul has shown himself to be relentless in pursuing David. And I think this is a bit of a preemptive strike. So pretend you're Saul. You're already paranoid. You think there's a vast conspiracy against you. You think David is lying in wait to kill you. That's what you think. And so you wake up to the sound of his voice in your camp where you felt secure with your 3,000 troops around you. And what you wake up to is him saying, check by your head. Is your spear there? Is your water jug there? No, because they're right here. You think how shocked, unnerved, startled you would be. If you're already paranoid, you already think this guy's lying in wait to kill you, to know he was literally standing over you, and you didn't know it, and nobody else in your army knew it. It's a tough place to be for Saul. I think what God, what David is trying to say is, I'm no threat to you. I'm no threat to you at all. If I wanted to kill you, I'd have killed you tonight. And here's proof of how close I was to you. The last time, it was Saul alone in a cave with David and 600 men. This time, it's David and one other guy in the middle of Saul's camp with 3,000 of them. I think the subtext, what's underneath that, is David is saying to Saul, and God was with me. How else do you think I made it? How else do you think I got from here to there and back without anybody waking up? And I think Saul recognizes that when he says, you're going to triumph. I think that's, in a way, it's Saul saying, you, you win. You win. I think he recognizes that God is with David. So I think that's what David was trying to do. He's trying to demonstrate his innocence. I think he was trying to demonstrate that God was with him. And he says to Saul, I'm not a threat. So you're not coming after me because of anything I've done. I haven't done anything to you. If God is the one who's driving you to do this, then let me and God take that up ourselves. I'll, I'll make an offering and be reconciled to God. If it's other people who are putting these ideas in your head, then God cursed them. What they've done to me over the last 8, 9, 10, 11 years is they've cut me off from my inheritance. God gave people land, and David hadn't been on his land in years. And, in, and he's saying, and they're making me worship other gods. What he's saying is, it's very difficult for me to worship God in the running around, like I've been running around in the desert, in the wilderness, in these foreign countries. Only priests can make sacrifices. David doesn't have a priest. He's not able to worship with sacrifices. He's not able to gather with his people for holy days and festivals. You know a few of the laws from the Old Testament. You've skimmed through Leviticus at some point. Think how hard it would be to keep those rules living in a cave. How hard would it be when you're, you're not raising your own food or you're 
animals or crops to eat kosher. How difficult would that be to maintain all of those purity laws? And then if you messed up, you can't even go to a priest and offer a sacrifice to be reconciled. And what David is saying is, that's what y'all have done to me. Whoever is telling you that I'm one of your enemies, that's what they've done to me. And I want them to be cursed because they're, they're cutting me off from God. And Saul says, and I think it's sincere. I think it's as sincere as far as it goes. It just doesn't go far enough in terms of the depth of his heart. I've sinned. And I, think he, I do think he believes that. I think he says, yes, I've sinned. I think he recognizes that. And he says to David, come home. And David does not wisely so. He says, you, you send somebody here to get your spear and your jug. It would be humiliating for Saul, particularly not to have his spear. That was a symbol of authority. You come get this, you go, and then Saul goes his way and David goes his way. And that's the last conversation between these two guys. It's their last meeting. One of the things you see here in chapter 26, it's a picture, and this for some of you would be very helpful. It's a picture of how to forgive someone who's not repentant. It's a picture of how to forgive someone who's not repentant. For many of us, we hear this command from Jesus, and it is a command to forgive those who've sinned against us. It's in Matthew 6, at the tail end of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive others if you forgive others, and you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive others, then you won't be forgiven. There's a parable, I think it's in Luke, about an unmerciful servant, someone who has a massive debt to a king, and he is forgiven, and someone owes him a small debt, and he doesn't forgive that small debt, and so then he's hauled back before the king. And Jesus says in the same way, if you don't forgive others, then you're not going to be forgiven by God. It's a very serious and sober word that Jesus gives. And so for many, some of us, so we wrestle because there's someone who's unrepentant in their sin towards us. They, they, they've hurt us, and they're not, they're not sorry at all. And they'll do it again the next chance they get. And so when we think about forgiving them, we, we're thinking, well, my putting myself in a position to continue to get hurt. And you see a picture here from David of how you can forgive someone who's unrepentant. Saul had hurt David. He had wronged him incredibly, egregiously, for years. Tried to kill him with a spear three different times. He's been chasing him all around Palestine for eight, nine, ten years. He's living in a cave. He's living in a desert. He took his wife away and gave her to somebody else. Treated him horribly. Saul wronged David. David forgives Saul. We saw that in the cave in chapter 24 when David says, I'm not touching him. That's what it means to forgive. I'm not, it's not mine. God is the judge between me and you, Saul. God is going to avenge me for the wrongs that you've done to me, and God is going to deliver me. That's forgiveness. It's saying, I'm not holding you hostage anymore. I'm not looking for payback. I'm not looking for revenge. It's God's job to judge, and he's going to do that. You see that here in chapter 26 when he says to Abishai, maybe God will strike him down like he did with Nabal. That was last week. David does not exact revenge on Nabal. Nabal has a stroke and 10 days later, God kills him. It says very clearly in the Bible, God did that. And he's saying, maybe God will do that to Saul. He says, maybe he'll just reach his end. He'll just, whatever the limit of his days is, he'll come to the end and then he'll die. Maybe he'll go to battle and he'll perish there. But either way, it doesn't matter. I'm not doing anything about it. We're not raising our hand against Saul. That's a picture of what it means to forgive someone. It says, I'm not holding you in judgment any longer. I'm not looking for revenge. I'm not looking to, to avenge. I'm not looking for payback. That's the Lord. He's the judge. 
and he'll decide. But notice, David doesn't go home with Saul. Saul says, come back, and David doesn't go. There's no indication that Saul will not try to kill him. In fact, every indication is that Saul's going to. That's what he's done. You remember way back, I think it was in chapter 16 or 17, Saul throws a spear at David twice. David goes back, he throws a spear at him again. He's already done this before. He's given Saul chance after chance after chance after chance to not kill him. And Saul continues to pursue him and hunt him down. And there may be weeks, there may be months in between the physical act of pursuing David. But it's going to come again, and he knows it, and so he doesn't go back. One statement, I've sinned, come home, does not cancel out 8, 9, 10, 11 years of you trying to kill me. There's wisdom there. It would be foolish for him to come home. So for you, this is for someone who's unrepentant. If you have a relationship on some level with an unrepentant person, they've sinned against you, you're commanded to forgive them. You don't have a choice. You have to forgive them. It's a command. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if they've apologized. It doesn't matter how much they've hurt you. It doesn't matter if they are, are saying, I'm never going to do that again or not. They're, that, they're not a part of the equation. Forgiveness is between you. That's you saying to the Lord, I'm, I'm forgiving them. I'm trusting you to judge them. I'm trusting you to avenge the wrongs they've done to me. I'm trusting you to deliver me, but I'm not raising my hand against them. I'm not looking for payback. We have to make a choice. Are we going to live in an economy of justice or an economy of mercy? You can't have both. With the measure that we use, it will be measured back to us. And so if, when Adam, if Adam sins against me and the measure I use is justice, then that's what God's going to use on me. I can't say, God, be gracious and merciful to me as I exact payment on someone who's wronged me. I can't have it both ways. I've got to live in one economy or the other. And so, again, it doesn't matter what the other... The other person is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is you before the Lord. God, I trust you to judge them. I pray you judge them harshly. You can say that until you get there. It's honest. God, I'm leaving it to you. I'm not exacting revenge on them. I'm not looking for payback. I'm not looking to see that they get theirs. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation is different. Romans 12. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Relationships are two ways. Reconciliation requires back and forth. And so if, if the other person is unrepentant, there is no possibility for reconciliation. There's still a requirement for forgiveness, but there's no opportunity for reconciliation until they repent. That's where David was with Saul. It's not enough, Saul, just to to acknowledge that you've sinned. Show me something. Try to go a month without killing me, and then we can talk. There's There's no track record at this point of Saul actually being anything other than an enemy of David. Let's give it some time, and let's see if you actually mean it. You've got to earn a little trust back with me, Saul. Like, that's okay. If someone has hurt you deeply or hurt you continually, you have to forgive them. You do not have to be reconciled with them if they're unrepentant. As much as it depends on you, and a relationship is not 100% on you. It may be more than 50%, but it's less than 100%. They bear some responsibility. If there's no repentance there, then there's no opportunity for reconciliation. God doesn't hold you to that. Does that make sense? 
Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Forgiveness is a command. You have to do that before the Lord. Reconciliation is also, in a sense, it's a command, but it requires two. If there's nothing on the other side, if there's no repentance, there's no change in behavior, then as much as it depends on you, you live at peace with them. But you're not going to have a relationship because something depends upon them as well. Does that make sense? You see that there. Other thing, real quick. I think chapter 26, great picture why God chose David over Saul. You see David's heart, you see Saul's heart. Remember, David is a man after God's heart. Doesn't mean he's perfect. David committed atrocious sins. And some, it's pretty easy to make a case that the things that he does are more wicked than the things that Saul does. We've seen over the last two weeks, it's not even that he has the greatest heart in the world. There's stuff in his heart that's evil as well, that sin is grabbing on to. But what you see in David is a responsiveness to the Lord that you don't see in Saul. What you see in Saul is resistance to the Lord. In chapter 24, both of them have a light bulb moment. You can use spiritual language and say they were convicted. You can use kind of more intellectual language and say they got some revelation or some new information. It doesn't matter to me. There's a a light bulb moment for both of them. David had another one in chapter 25. Saul was not in the picture for that. In chapter 24, David cuts the corner of Saul's robe. And immediately he's conscience stricken. Literally his heart hit him. He, I've sinned. He realizes that. Convicted by the Holy Spirit. He recognizes what I'm doing is sinful. This is, I'm asserting my own will here. I'm grasping for the throne. There's, new, there's a light bulb moment for him. I can't do this. And he walks in a different direction. I'm not, we're, nobody's touching Saul. In chapter 26, he takes a spear and a water jug and he doesn't feel any conviction at all. None at all. He actually intended to do that. That's why he walked into Saul's camp. How can, he, how can cutting the corner of a robe bring conviction and taking someone's spear and water jug not? Everything's about his heart. In chapter 24, it was to grab It was to assert himself. It was to show Saul, see, I've got you. You're in my, I I can, I can kill you if I want to. So it's a, it's a self-assertive move. In chapter 26, there was none of that. It's to demonstrate his innocence. It's to demonstrate that God was with him. And so he can take those things without any sense of conviction. It's, It's okay before the Lord for him to do that. Whereas cutting the robe was not okay before the Lord. For him to do that. There's that information for David. You see it in chapter 25 when he wants to take uh, vengeance on Nabal. And Abigail says, don't do this. And David says, I was wrong. Thank the Lord that you came and you kept me from this bloodshed. I was wrong. He recognizes, I I can't do this. I have the physical power to kill this man and every man in his house. But it's wrong for me to do that. Saul in chapter 24 also has a light bulb moment. He says to David, I've treated you wickedly. I've treated you evilly. I know. He says, I know. I know God has put you on the throne. I know that God is with you. I know that you're going to rule. He says that. He knows that. What we see in chapter 26 is David has assimilated that information. He's taken this light bulb moment and he's worked it into his behavior. He doesn't touch Saul. He goes into his camp knowing nobody's touching Saul. I'm not Abishai. You're not doing it. Either God will strike him dead or his time will come or he may die in a battle, but we're not touching him. I've learned that. I learned that in the cave 
And I learned that on the road. I, no, we're not doing that. God can take care of my enemies, just like he did with Nabal. He can take care of Saul. We don't raise our hand against the Lord's anointed. That's not what we do. We give God the opportunity to judge. David learned something, and it incorporated that revelation, that truth into his life. Saul, nothing. He says, I know, David, you're the one God's chosen. I know I've treated you wickedly. And what does he do in chapter 26? The same thing. Takes 3,000 men to go hunt him down. When, he, when, when he's confronted, he says, I've sinned. I, I, I was coming to harm you. I'm not going to do that anymore. But there's no, there's no change in his behavior at all. He does the exact same thing in chapter 26 that you see in chapter 24. And that's the difference between those two guys. It's not that David's a better man than Saul. It's that David has a heart that's responsive to God and Saul's heart is resistant to God. Nowhere in 1 Samuel where we see Saul's behavior do we ever see him responding positively to anything that the Lord would say to him. Directly or through a prophet. We don't see anything. He continues on in the path that he's going down. No, no change at all. Paul in 2, Samuel, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians 7 talks about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And this is a picture of that. David is a picture of godly sorrow. Saul is a picture of worldly sorrow. The difference between the two being the fruit. Godly sorrow leads to repentance in life. Worldly sorrow leads to death because there's no repentance. They look the same. Jesus talks about wheat and tares. It's a different context, but it's a similar concept. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow look the same initially. There's a sense that says, I'm wrong. And Saul says that, I've sinned. In chapter 24, he says, I'm wrong. There's a sense in which at the beginning, both types of sorrow look very similar. There may be tears. There may be a genuine sense of regret and a genuine sense of remorse. Very well could be the case, but it's in time. Godly sorrow produces repentance in life. Worldly sorrow only leads to death. Why? Because there's no repentance. It's a sorrow over getting caught. It's a sorrow over the consequences of the actions. There's not a brokenness over the act itself and what it reveals about our own hearts. So no change in behavior. I see this with, with honestly, I see this in... Uh, situations where you have unfaithfulness gets caught and there can be initially there's it's hard to tell initially is this genuine repentance or not and only time tells because everybody looks the same at the beginning everybody's crying at the beginning everybody is i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i love you everybody does that at the beginning it's over time is there a change in behavior if there's godly sorrow there is there's worldly sorrow, there's not. And only time tells. They look the same at the beginning, but one leads to repentance, a change in behavior. Repentance means literally changing your mind and then your behavior changes as well as an outflow of your new way of thinking. Only time will tell. And what we see with Saul is time tells. He, he, he wasn't, it wasn't godly sorrow. There's no repentance. Nothing changed. He does the exact same thing in chapter 26 that he did in chapter 24 that he did in chapter 18. That's the space of a decade, and he's still doing the same thing, even though he knows. He knows David's the one God's chosen. Can you fathom that? I know God's picked you, and so my response is to kill you. It's, I, don't even, I don't have an adjective to describe 
that level of depravity in him. Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, they look the same, they're different. Worldly sorrow, we don't have time to dig into it too much. Go back and read 1 Samuel 15. It's a great picture of worldly sorrow. Saul is confronted by the prophet Samuel because he doesn't obey God's command. It's a very difficult command. Go wipe out this town. Wipe out this whole town. Kill the Amalekites, all of them. Men, women, children. Kill the livestock. All of it. And it was because of centuries of rebelliousness on the Amalekites' part. And it was finally time for God to judge them. And Saul was the instrument of that. Take, kill them. Saul doesn't. He keeps the best of the sheep and the cattle. He allows the king to live. Samuel confronts him after the Lord says, I'm, I can't believe I made him. I, I'm sorry that I made him the king. And Samuel confronts Saul. And what you see is blaming and justifying, rationalizing. You see him way more concerned about his public image than he is about his relationship with the Lord. He says to Samuel, just make sure everybody knows we're okay, me and you. I need you publicly next to me. He doesn't, seem, he doesn't say anything about his relationship with the Lord. There's no brokenness in him at all. He does finally admit that he sinned, but there's no sense in which he's contrite over that. Again, you can go back and read the story. We don't have time to look at it. Very different picture. In 2 Samuel, I think it's 10, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then arranges for her husband Uriah to be killed. And he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. It's a parallel. Samuel the prophet confronts Saul the king. Nathan the prophet confronts David the king. Saul's response is worldly sorrow, justification, blaming, minimizing, concerned about his reputation. David's response, you see it it in 2 Samuel 11, and you see it in Psalm 51, which he wrote during this time. Very different. They can't be more different. Night and day. David is a broken man. He fasts for seven days after he's confronted with this sin. You read some of the quotes there from Psalm 51 up on the screen. He recognizes this is not just about a couple of isolated behaviors. This is about my heart. I need a clean heart. I don't just need help not sinning. I'm a sinner and I need need you to cleanse me. He's desperate to be reconciled to God. Don't take your spirit from me. Don't. I've got to maintain relationship with you. He doesn't care that as the king, he's fasting and laying, weeping on the floor for seven days. He doesn't care what people think. His desire is to be restored and reconciled. He recognizes that as um, wicked as he was towards Uriah's family, ultimately all sins are sins against the Lord. And he acknowledges that. Acknowledges that. It doesn't minimize what he's done with to Uriah's family. But he recognizes, I've sinned against the Lord. This is serious, serious stuff. Difference in their heart could not be more stark. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So for us, the question, if you're struggling with an, an issue of ongoing sin, whether that's behavior or thought pattern, think of sin as missing the mark. If you're struggling with ongoing sin, could it be, that you're not experiencing godly sorrow over that behavior. If you read Psalm 51, if that's how you felt, sorrow is an emotional word. There's an emotional component that makes some of us uncomfortable, but that, it's there. If, you've, if you can identify with Psalm 51 regarding that behavior, I don't know how you continue in that behavior over time. It would seem to me that if I continue to engage in the same behavior... 
which I, that I know to be sinful over time, that maybe what I'm experiencing is not godly sorrow. Maybe it's worldly sorrow. Maybe I'm sorry I got caught. Maybe I'm sorry that the consequences of my behavior have uh, hurt me. Or maybe I'm sorry that the consequences of my behavior have hurt you on some level. But I don't know that I'm genuinely broken, recognizing not just the acts that I've committed are sinful, but me. I'm a sinner, and I need, to, I need a new heart. I need God to work deeply within me because I continue to engage in the same thing over and over and over again. If that's you this morning, where you continue to engage in the same sinful pattern of behavior, that could be something as what we would say benign as unbelief. I just don't trust God in this area, which doesn't necessarily seem to impact anybody but us. To other things that we would see as more scandalous. Anything on that continuum. If you're continuing to engage... Would you this morning be willing to say, God, I, I don't think that I'm experiencing godly sorrow. I want to because I see where, where, I see where worldly sorrow ends. It ends in death. I'm not interested. God, would you stir within me a godly sorrow for this? Can, would you allow me to feel about my sin what David felt about his in Psalm 51? I can't, I can't gin that up on my own. I'm asking you to stir or provoke that within me, for you to give me a glimpse of my own wickedness, not so I can beat myself up, but so I can recognize the great need I have for mercy and grace this morning. The message of the cross is it's all available to you. You don't have to weep and wail and, and moan and try to make up for your sin. By feeling bad about it. When you're convicted, you recognize your need for a Savior. You recognize your own sinfulness. You ask, God, would you forgive me of this? Would you give me grace to walk in a new direction? Galatians says that we reap what we sow as a law of the universe. Outside of the cross, it's always true. Eternally, if not Temporally, we always reap what we sow, except for the cross. In the cross, we sow sin. We should reap death. Jesus sowed righteousness. He should reap life. But the cross is this great exchange. We get to reap the life that he sowed. And he reaps the death that we sowed. That offers available to you this morning, if you ask. Let's pray. Bo's going to come back and he's going to sing. We don't want you to sing this first song. Just stay in your seat and spend some time with the Lord. Two things I'd encourage you to think about. One, is there anyone that you need to forgive? For many of you, the answer is no. But for some of you, the answer is yes. So would you be willing just to ask the Lord, guys, or anybody? It may be something that's immediately in your mind. It may be something from the distant Something that in your mind you've gotten over. But getting over something and forgiving are not the same thing. Forgiving is a conscious and deliberate choice that you make. Some of us, we can move past things pretty quickly. Again, that's not the same as releasing someone from judgment. And so just ask the Lord if you would.
God, is there anybody that I need to forgive? If that person is unrepentant, don't, that's irrelevant to the issue of forgiveness. That has to do with reconciliation, and you can ask the Lord. What I would ask the Lord around that is, God, what does it mean for me to live at peace with them? As much as it depends on me, I want to live at peace with them. So what does that look like behaviorally? How do I walk that out? And just trust that he'll lead you. It's two separate issues. The other thing I'd encourage you to think about, for some of you, you, there is a sense, unless you're a, this is genuine, unless you're a sociopath, you feel guilt when you mess up. That's just part of it. So the issue is not do you feel sorry for sin or do you feel sorry for hurting people or do you feel sorry, do you have regret and remorse when you miss the mark, kind of however you're defining the mark. That's not the issue. It's does that sense of remorse and regret and sorrow lead you to repentance or not? And if your track record is it doesn't, because I continue to go back to the same thing over and over and over again, maybe like Saul, there's a week or a month or even three months where I'm not hunting David. But I know I'm going to again. Somebody's going to say something about how great he is, and it's going to set me off, and I'm going to have to go and take him out. If you know that's you this morning, would you be willing to ask the Lord to shift you from worldly to godly sorrow. God, I want to feel condemned. I'm, I'm looking for conviction. And conviction that leads to repentance, which leads to life. We, none of us want to wallow in our sin. We have to recognize our sin in order to receive grace and to move forward in a new direction. So if that's you, there's an an area where you wallow a little bit in terms of going back to the same thing over and over again. God, would you stir, provoke within me a godly sorrow around this behavior? Something that within me will stir repentance, God. I want to think differently about this. And I want to move in a different direction. But up to this point, I haven't, I haven't been able to. I haven't made any progress. It's a vicious cycle for me. Would you break that this morning? And would you begin in my heart by stirring this godly sorrow? So Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts? This can be kind of a heavy thing. I don't want anybody feeling weighed down and burdened unnecessarily so. God, I pray we would feel conviction where we need to, whether that's because we haven't forgiven people or because there's habitual sin in our life. But God, I pray that that conviction would lead to repentance and to freedom. So Holy Spirit, would you come and move in our hearts in these next few